0: You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles uh, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. And we are starting a new series in the book of Ephesians that we have called Beyond Imagination, Beyond Imagination, and um, I'm really excited about this series, but I have to admit uh, that that title, Beyond Imagination, is a a pretty big-sounding title. Like, yes, I'm the one who titled it that, but uh, I wasn't sure that I was comfortable with it at first because it kind of honestly sounds like one of those, like, pep you up, Ra ra sis boom ba kind of like titles where you're just like, get the team going before the big game. Let's go, let's go. This is beyond imagination. Let's go. We're going to the fall. Let's go, right? And, and I usually try to avoid things like that. It's just not the way that I roll because um, it, it usually ends up overselling and under-delivering. But the more that I got ready for this sermon series and the more that I studied the book of Ephesians, the more I just couldn't get away from this title. Because the more I saw that this is what God is doing in the church. This is what God is revealing about the church through this book. And so the title for the series, uh, I didn't make it up exactly. Uh, it's from Paul's prayer of worship at the end of the first half of the letter. He, he prays this over the church. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, uh, the ESV uses that word, think, Uh, The NIV uses the word imagination. It could be translated understand. It could be translated comprehend. Imagine. To him who is able to do far more abundantly, more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory. Where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so the the title of the series comes from the book itself. Aren't you glad we don't just, like, make stuff up around here and just kind of do our own thing? But even still, that can feel a little too big at times, right? Like, even though this verse is in the Bible and it can be easy for us to to read it and then look at our week-in, week-out experience with the church and say, like, really? Because I'm not feeling that. I don't know, I don't know about you am i like am I the only person who ever experiences that? You're all like, this is a great church this is amazing. but but it can be really easy to look at the idea of church from a human perspective at at its best. We see a group of messed up people who, by God's grace, get together to worship God, listen to His word, and tell others about jesus like that's that's the best that we imagine, right. At its worst, people see the church as an institution that's been used for years to abuse and oppress and divide people in the world. Kids, students, maybe you look at the church and you're like, yeah, yeah, I I can think of a lot of other things that that stir my imagination more than going to church. Church sometimes feels boring at at times. Maybe you'll feel that by the end of the day. But it, it doesn't matter if you have a positive, favorable view of the church or an unfavorable view of the church. When we view church from a human perspective, our biggest ideas about the church are simply not big enough. And the book of Ephesians shows that, that God is able and he is willing for the sake of his glory to do far more abundantly than we could ask or imagine in the church. And in Christ Jesus. The book of Ephesians teaches us to view the church from God's perspective. So let me illustrate it for you this way. Uh, this summer, we, we were on sabbatical and we got to go out to the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter out in Kentucky. And uh, my favorite part of that whole experience was going to the planetarium. Because what happens in the planetarium is uh, they, they turn on the screen and the first thing that you see is a satellite image of the creation museum where you are sitting at that moment. And so, you know, you're just like, okay, yeah, that's a pretty big picture of where we are right now. But then they, they go out, they pan out by magnifications of 10 or something like that again and again and again and again and again and again until your position just gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and eventually you you can't even see the earth. You can't even see our galaxy. And they are showing you the beauty of things that God alone has enjoyed for millennia before anyone had the technology to see it ourselves, to even know about it. And they even show clusters of stars and galaxies that that they just look like little dots, And, and no eye has ever seen them, not even with a telescope. No eye ever will see them. And you just feel so small. But then you you zoom back in, and they start to share God's heart for humanity as they pan in very very fast. And now even with all of that universe under His control, He still cares for people sitting there in that seat. And and, and they 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 focus on the fact that he cares about each one of us and that he has a plan to reconcile all of this to himself through Jesus Christ. And you're just like, awesome, God, thank you for caring. That kind of experience is the goal of our entire series in the book of Ephesians, to help us see that we are not the biggest thing in God's plan. God and his glory are. But at the same time, to see that he gets great glory through the church and through Christ Jesus. And so if you've ever felt like church feels dry and lifeless at times, this series is for you. If you've ever had a hard time motivating yourself to get up and gather with God's people on a Sunday morning or or to prioritize meeting with the gospel community or other relationships in our church, this sermon series is for you. And if you've been hurt by something called the church that was not living out this plan, this sermon series is for you. And and if you love the church with all your heart, and you give your time and your energy and you treasure it, the series is for you. Because for you and, and even for me, God's plan for the church is far more abundant than I could ever ask or imagine. And he wants us to think bigger. He wants us to think more expansive. And so here's our goal for, for the series and our big idea for the day. Pursue God's unimaginable vision for his church so that he might receive much glory. Pursue God's unimaginable vision for his church so that he might receive much glory. Your Bibles are open to Ephesians 1, and today we're going to cover just the first two verses, and don't let you think that that's going to be a short sermon. You know me. You know me. This is the introduction to the letter, and we're going to use this as a launching point into the overview of the whole book. So uh, look down in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. We want you to have a Bible in front of you, reading it, God's Word, because that's where the authority and the power is. Reading God's Word for yourself. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of, Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to study today. And that might seem basic, it might seem trivial, but when we come to the scriptures, we have to understand that not one word is wasted. And so these verses might not look like much to you, but they actually foreshadow massive themes that we can trace throughout the entire letter. And so by way of overview, we're going to use these verses like a diving board to launch into the the great ocean of our study this fall. And hopefully uh, you were able to familiarize yourself with uh, the reading plan this week, we have these out on the table. Uh, we, we want you in God's Word every day, and in order to help you do that, uh, we, we put together these reading plans. This one uh, this week would have been an overview, and then the, the coming weeks is going to be an inductive study of the passage that we're going to study that coming Sunday, and it's going to teach you good Bible study methods. It's going to uh, help you uh, combine your daily time in the Word and develop that discipline, with what we're doing on Sunday mornings, and with what we're doing in gospel communities, so that everything is kind of tracking together, and your mind isn't like here, there, and everywhere. It's like, okay, this is what the Lord is leading us in right now. And so, I would encourage you. Uh, hopefully, you were able to do that. Uh, and so, if you did, you're gonna you're gonna probably get the most out of this this week. But uh, you're, I, I definitely plan for people not doing that, and you'll still get something out of it too. Um, So for the next 45 minutes or so, our goals are to first lay a solid groundwork of the context of the letter, and then second, to lay three primary themes for the book of Ephesians, and, and, and in those themes, three ways that we can expand our imagination so that when we think about the church, and particularly our local church involved in the greater thing that God is doing, we are looking at things from God's perspective. Okay? You with me? So the first theme, the first way that we want to expand our imagination this fall is this. uh, Expand your participation in the plan of Christ. Expand your participation in the plan of Christ. So Paul begins the letter by introducing himself as the author. In those days, you signed the letter first. Make sense? You want to know who's writing you a letter, right? So he signs it like this. He says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, you should read that and then look up at the point on the screen and be like, uh, Pastor Ben, I don't see where you're getting the main point from. What what does that greeting have to do with our participation in the plan of Christ? To which I would say, I'm glad you asked. It shows you're holding me accountable. But I want to show you that this greeting has everything to do with the plan of Christ. Because Paul, the apostle, plays a big role in revealing God's plan in the present age. So let's just start with that word, apostle, because it's not one that we use uh, very often in our modern language. A lot of times people use it in flippant ways that are not that helpful, but the word apostle simply means sent one. It means sent one. An apostle is a messenger. It's an ambassador. And the degree of authority that an apostle has is based upon who sent them and what message they carry. Which is why it's important for Paul to qualify himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul was sent, he's carrying the message of Christ Jesus. Christ means the promised anointed savior king. And therefore, the message that Paul delivers in this book carries the very authority of the high king of heaven, Jesus himself. So let's let's never forget this. When we pick up this book and we open it to a, a place like Ephesians, we are not merely reading the words of men. These writers are, are messengers of Jesus. They are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They speak the very words of God. And that's why it is ludicrous for someone to say, like I've heard a, a former pastor in this area say, she said, she said I, I don't pay much attention to Paul. He's just a man. I, I just focus on the words of Jesus. Apostasy. To read the Bible including Paul's letter to the Ephesians, is to read the word of Jesus. He's the one who sent Paul. He was an apostle of Christ Jesus. And so that's why we sing and pray with eager expectation, speak, O Lord. Because we believe that he is speaking through his living and active word. And so Paul emphasizes this himself throughout the letter, that the words of the apostles are the foundation upon which the church is built. Now this gets even more clear when we recognize that the apostle writing this letter is not just any one of the apostles. He is the Apostle Paul. He identifies himself as the Apostle Paul. And Paul had a very unique calling and a very unique role in the plan of God. Which is why I believe the second phrase that he includes is in there, by the will of God by the will of God. God had hand-selected Paul to reveal his plan of salvation, which was not just a plan of salvation for individuals, although we each must individually be saved, but it was a plan of salvation for the entire church, which is God's plan for the present age. To really understand this, we have to go back to Paul's calling in the book of Acts. You see, the now apostle of Christ Jesus used to be a devout Jewish Pharisee who killed people for following Jesus. And one day, he was on his way to beat up some Christians in Damascus, and the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him and literally knocked him off his high horse. And Jesus struck him blind, and he sent him ahead to the city of Damascus, where he would meet a disciple named Ananias, who would then tell him what to do. Now, when Jesus tells Ananias that he's supposed to go lay hands on Paul, like V. Paul who's killing all the Christians and restore his sight, he's understandably a little bit scared. And this is where this very important phrase comes in about Paul's ministry. Here's what Jesus com- comforts Ananias with in Acts 9, 15, and 16. He says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. By the will of God, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. Where? Where? You see it? To the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. Gentiles are everyone who's not a Jew. So you might say the the nations. The the Gentiles hearing the gospel and joining God's people is very important to the whole theme of the book of Ephesians. It's really part of the main purpose why Paul is writing it. But for now, we're going to focus on Paul's apostolic calling by the will of God. He's God's chosen instrument to carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles. And so just get this in your mind. Here's a devout Jew who kills Jesus' followers for fun. And now he's going to carry the name of Jesus, not just to the Jews, but to unclean Gentiles who he would never dream of interacting with before. And that calling is ironic. It's ironic because now the Christian killer is now the Christian, but it's ironic in in, in an even bigger way that I want you to see because Paul's story parallels a much bigger story, which is why I believe God was looking at Paul and saying he's the perfect fit. See, just like the pre-converted Paul, the Jewish nation had forsaken their role in God's redemption. And I want to show you this because if you're going to understand Ephesians, you you need to understand the church. You need to understand the, the history of God's plan to save humanity. We call that the redemptive historical context of the book. So this is all part of context, right? So everybody say that with me, redemptive historical. Redemptive historical context, right? God's plan to save humanity starts all the way back at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. God created the first humans, Adam and Eve, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And they were to procreate an entire human race who would be God's people on earth and reflect his image and goodness perfectly throughout the world. Their source of identity was found in their relationship to God. God. And so they walked with God in the garden, and they did his work. But when God created, he he created more than just the earthly realm. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He, He created the heavenly realm of angels who were designed to worship him around his heavenly throne and to give him glory in a different way than humans did. And those two realms were created to interact, and yet they were not the same. And so I want you to keep this this two-realm picture in mind as we go through this entire story, right? So, all of the problems that we face on earth actually started in the heavenly realm through a great rebellion. In Genesis 3, we're introduced to a serpent who tempts the woman, who tempts her husband to sin. And that serpent is referred to throughout the Bible by a number of different names. He's called Lucifer, an angel of light. He's called Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. I always think about that when I have a lot of flies in my office. He's he's called devil or deceiver. He's called that great dragon. And perhaps more common name that we use would be Satan. And so Satan rebelled against God himself by wanting to be God instead, and he led with him a third of the angels of heaven. And when that did not succeed, he was promptly cast out of heaven, and then he tried to tempt human beings to do the same. If you want to see that uh, the—I'm sorry, I want you to see that the problem that we face is more complex than people eating an apple that God told them not to eat. So often we, we trivialize it. Why is it such a big deal? They just ate an apple. The problem we face is cosmic in scope, and it finds its roots in the heavenly realm. That's very important to the book of Ephesians. So in Genesis 3, enters the world, and Adam and Eve give into this lie of Satan that they could be like God without God, that they didn't need God. And so we call this the fall. And so God banished them from perfect relationship that they had with Him. He put strife between them and Himself, between them and each other, between them and the created order, like the hurricane that we just saw this past week. That's part of the fall, and between them and the whole host of fallen angels and demons. And the ultimate conquest, of, I'm sorry, consequence of their sin was spiritual death. It was eternal separation from God. The entire created order, the heavens and the earth, fell into chaos because of the sin of humanity. And that's very important because it explains so much of our day-to-day experience even now. But but God in his mercy made a promise to set things right. He, He had promised through the woman, he would send a son to crush the head of the serpent. And that promise was repeated again and again and again throughout the ages. And it came to Noah after God wiped out most of humanity with a worldwide flood. And then as the world repopulated and sin continued to abound, God gave this promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would be given land, which we know today as the land of Israel, that he would be given an offspring, singular, get to that later. And a blessing. And that through Abraham's offspring, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. That Abraham's family would include not just his son Isaac, but a whole multitude of people, as many as the stars in the heavens. God's intent all along was that the nations, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well, would be reconciled to him. You have to understand that that goes all the way back to the beginning. And that promise to Abraham was reiterated to his son Isaac, and then to Isaac's son Jacob, and then to Jacob's 12 sons, who became the forefathers of the nation of, anybody know? Israel. Just making sure you're with me, thanks. The nation of Israel was called to be a nation of priests, and a light to the nations. They were a set-apart people designed to point people to God. And understand, Israel was the plan of God through which God would fulfill His promise to Abraham and bless the nations of the earth. But if you read, oh, by the way, they they specifically did that. You see in the picture the temple, right? They specifically did that through their obedience to the law, and specifically through the the tabernacle and the temple where God's presence would dwell on earth, uh, uh, going back to the Garden of Eden, which is how the temple was decorated, was to reflect the Garden of Eden. But if you read the Old Testament, they, they fail on a number of fronts here. Uh, first, they, they aren't faithful to God. They give in to sin just like the rest of the nations. And, and so they regularly worship worship the false gods of the nations instead of the one true God. Ultimately, the Bible says that the false gods of the nations are themselves demons. And so they're worshiping demons in the heavenly realm. And and, and yet they're still God's chosen nation. Not not only that, but Israel has this spiritual pride that just because of their bloodline, they're better than the rest of the nation. So they misunderstand their entire purpose of having God in their midst. They, They forget that they were chosen in mercy, not because of their pedigree, so think uh, think about the prophet of Jonah, right? You remember Jonah? He, he was told to go to Nineveh and preach to this Gentile nation, and he couldn't even fathom that. He's repulsed at the idea of, of God showing mercy on those people because he's better. And Israel is better. And so God continually warned Israel of the consequence. If you you refuse to worship me alone and represent me to the nations, I'm going to send you into exile. Exile. And I'm going to give you over to the slavery of the false demon gods that you worship. And, And so he did, and he sent them into exile in Assyria, and then in Babylon, and in Persia, and then they got to return back to their land. But even when they did, they were still under the domination of Greece and of Rome. You need to understand, if you were to talk to a faithful Jew today, they're going to understand that they are still in exile. Why? Because the temple is still broken down. Because they are incapable, the way that they think that they should, of representing God to the nations. And so they are still scattered among the nations, and they don't believe that their Messiah has come. We need to tell them that he has, by the way. So here's the the plugging question then at the end of the Old Testament. If the people that God chose to represent him to the nations can't or won't do it, how will God fulfill his promise to Abraham that he would be a father of many nations? That's the tension. How will God get glory from the nations that he rightfully deserves? And how will the whole created order, the heavens and the earth, be restored? Enter Jesus. Jesus is God the Son crashing through that distance between heaven and earth. He is God tabernacling among his people, not in a tent or a temple built by human hands, but in the flesh. He he succeeded everywhere that Israel failed. He completely fulfilled God's law. He cast out demons. He healed the brokenness that was caused by the fall. And he forgave sin. And he forgave sin because he made the perfect sacrifice for sin in his own body as he died on a cross. And he rose again to new life so that he could be the light of the world the Bible says that that work on the cross had a profound effect. It rendered the gods of this world, Satan and his demons, powerless. He triumphed over them in the cross and in his resurrection. He put them to open shame. He crushed the head of the serpent. He took away the curse of death so that people could once again live in perfect relationship with God forever. And as a result of his resurrection, Jesus is creating a new people a new humanity that's that's beginning the process of reconciling all things together in himself, things in heaven and things on earth. That's Ephesians 1.10, by the way. See, we're getting closer to Ephesians now. And that people is created as the good news is proclaimed and believed. That the people is made up of all those who believe. So everyone who believes in God, just like Abraham did, becomes a child of Abraham and an heir of God through faith because their faith is counted to them as righteousness, as right standing with God. And so get this, Jesus is the blessing that comes through Israel and through Abraham to the nations. Jesus is the blessing. There's only one problem here. Israel still largely rejects their own blessing. Especially the religious leaders like the Pharisees, Paul being a prime example of that before his conversion. And so they remain in exile to this day until their eyes are open to see that Jesus really is the Messiah that they were waiting for all along. And in the meantime, the, the, the gospel and the privilege of sharing the gospel gets to go forward through the Gentiles. And that new people... That new humanity that I mentioned earlier that is formed of Jews and Gentiles is now called the church. It is not Israel, though it includes Jews. It does not replace Israel, though other nations receive the full benefits given to Israel. But the church is something new. Ephesians chapter 2 calls it a new man. It is the gathering of Jews and Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus Christ and worship together before his throne. It is the obediently assembled household of God that includes both Israel and the nations. And the church has been filled with the very spirit of God to be the very body of Christ and is given the responsibility of carrying God's blessing to the nations in the present age by proclaiming the good news of Jesus to all. Now, Satan and his demons don't like that. They want to trip that up, and they're going to fight tooth and nail to make it as slow as possible. And so that's what we see in Ephesians chapter 6, the whole spiritual warfare section. But the church will be victorious. Our unity, our salvation proves his defeat. And so the church is God's present plan then to create a people for himself who are going to then live forever in a new creation. And God's going to restore Israel, and he's going to fulfill all of his promises to them, and they're going to continue to play a unique role throughout the rest of eternity. But God's vision is bigger than Israel. His plan is a new heavens and a new earth where God dwells with his people. And so why do I go into all that? Because you can't understand Ephesians unless you understand how it fits into this whole plan of God that affects both heavens and earth. And, also, because it is what Paul means when he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul is saying, I, I once thought that I was something special as a Jew who opposed Christians. That was my will. But God had a different will for my life. And, and I understand that my only identity in relationship to jesus christ and my only job in life is to do his will and to make his will known and christ's will for paul was clearly communicated to him on a number of circumstances and paul highlights that in ephesians chapter 3 verses 8 to 10. it's up on the screen for you he says to me though i am the very least of all the saints do you see the humility that has now come? This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So right there we see a twofold purpose for the Apostle Paul. One, to carry the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles specifically. And two, to reveal this mystery that the gospel of Jesus Christ created a new people who are God's plan called the church. And why is that his call? He continues, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the the fulfillment that the whole plan of, of that whole plan of God that I just told you about, the wisdom of God to put all of that together. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Where's his concern? In the heavenly places. To the very expanse of the cosmos. And so here's the bottom line of what I'm trying to say. Uh, Paul's job as an apostle, and his purpose in writing this letter is to reveal that what is happening in the church and in Christ Jesus is cosmic in nature. The gospel and the church are the cosmic plan of God. And by that I mean that the church is not just about what we see going on in this earthly realm. I mean that it has massive ramifications for the glory of God in both the earthly and the heavenly realms. See, when spiritually dead people come alive and turn from their sin and they start worshiping Jesus, when people stop fighting against God's plan for their life and they start fighting for God's plan for their life, when people stop fighting their sworn enemies and are instead reconciled to them in unity, something bigger than we can possibly imagine is happening. Something is happening through which God gets great glory to the very furthest reaches of heaven and earth. And our sin problem was cosmic in scope. It extends to the heavenly places, and therefore, God's plan of reconciliation is cosmic in scope. His plan is to create a people for himself from every tribe and nation and language and people who reflect his wisdom and grace to the furthest stretches of the heavenly places. And so, what does that mean for us as we pursue God's unimaginable vision in this church? It means that we expand our participation in the plan of Christ. There's no way that we could participate too much. your reading plan I worded it this way that we would expand our vision of church ministry so that we maximize our role in the body and just like Paul our, our lives must be devoted to the will of God which this book reveals is wrapped up in his plan for the church like why after coming to understand God's plan for redemption would we want to give ourselves to anything else everything just seems so small after that Just like Paul, we each have a role to play in the church. We actually see this in the book's very structure. So the first half of the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 to 3, are this theological truth of of this big, glorious, beyond imagination plan of God that he is accomplishing in the church. It's largely what God has done. And then the second half of the book, in chapters 4 to 6, is all about how we are to live because that is true. And so here's what I find very fascinating about Ephesians. Paul's description of the church in the first half of the book is so big, so glorious, so universal, so heavenly-minded. But when he goes to apply that to the practical, everyday things of life in the second half of the book, it's so practical, so local, so seemingly small. It includes things like being equipped as a member of Christ's body to do the work of the ministry. It includes simple things like speaking the truth and love to one another and building one another up. It, it includes things like singing to one another and teaching one another in all wisdom. It, it includes things like making sure our households are ordered properly and, and that we're living out the gospel in our workplaces. And so which is it? Is the church about these big cosmic universal realities or these small localized moments like I live in every day to which Paul would say, yes, it's both at the same time. And what we learn is that the the things that seem so small in the church actually have massive effects in the spiritual realm that we do not typically imagine or even think about. And the more that we see and understand those effects, the more that we are motivated to participate in God's plan through one another ministry. So when you see your singing on a Sunday morning, isn't just about making sure that your your voice doesn't sound too bad to the people around you? Or isn't just about making sure that you know the songs well enough and that they're your favorite hymns or choruses or whatever you want? but that really it's the channel by which we together experience the spirit of God filling us, like he says in Ephesians chapter 5. That increases your participation in singing, doesn't it? Better. When you realize that the health of your marriage isn't so that you could have a happy wife and a happy life, but that it's all about displaying the beauty of Christ's relationship with his church, the watching world and to the angels who are watching as well, that motivates you to pursue God's design in a different way. And so our goal for this fall is that we would expand our vision of church ministry, church in general, so that we would each maximize our role in the body. Believer, you need to understand this. The church is not some part of your life. It's not some activity or social club or organization that you're part of that you just squeeze into the margins when you have spare time. The church is God's plan for the whole present age, and everything in your life must connect back to that plan if you're going to be found in the will of God. We could say it this way. Part of your identity in Christ is that you are part of his church and you must live out that identity practically if you're going to be found faithful in him. That leads to the second theme that I want to look at this morning from the second half of verse 1. That was the first half of verse 1. Don't worry, this is going to go faster from here. Paul writes, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So, theme two is expand your wonder at your identity in Christ. Expand your wonder at your identity in Christ. Paul addresses the letter to the saints. That's an identity word. And that doesn't mean dead people who you pray to, by the way, like the Catholic Church sometimes talks about saints. Saints simply means those who are set apart for the purpose of God as holy. And notice, I want you to notice, look down in your Bible, the word saints is plural. There's an S on the end. We are together saints as a people. I keep emphasizing this throughout. Secondly, Paul describes these saints as as faithful, literally full of faith. They, They believe Jesus and they live out of that belief in Jesus. Their lives are devoted to him in everything that they say and do. And so these saints who are faithful are identified then with a specific location. Ephesus, that's where we get the name Ephesians, right? And Ephesus is a a major city in Asia Minor. It was a a port city with a lot of trade coming in and out of it. It was a a pretty happening place. And one of the biggest things that was happening in the city of Ephesus was the worship of the goddess Artemis. They had a massive temple. We showed it a couple weeks ago because Timothy was there, right? And that was one of the major things happening until that is... The gospel really shook things up. About eight years before writing this letter, Paul had spent two years in Ephesus preaching the gospel and establishing that church. And the gospel had taken great effect in that place. And and people were turning from the worship of Artemis to the worship of Jesus in masses. And so the, the church was largely then built of Gentiles who had converted from pagan worship to Jesus, but then it also included, we see in, in the book of Acts, it included some uh, former Jews who had been taught in the baptism of John the Baptist. And so the gospel had such an impact that it actually was hurting the economy, the local economy, because it, it put a, a major dent in the idol manufacturing silversmithing industry. Remember that from Acts? And so what we can learn about from that event is that this, this church in Ephesus is, is filled with Gentiles, but it also has Jews. And so the Jew-Gentile distinction that Paul continually addresses in this letter is very important specifically in that church, but it's important to us as well. Now, it's interesting. Many of you probably have a footnote in your Bible. You can check in your Bible to see if you have it. And that footnote would tell you that the words, who are in Ephesus is not found in the earliest manuscripts. Like, what's that all about? Like, this is the Ephesians. Like, why? It's possible that they actually weren't in the original. And and there's great evidence, though, to support the idea that the letter did go to Ephesus, but probably not only to Ephesus, but to the churches in the surrounding region, like Laodicea and Colossae. It's likely what was called an encyclical letter, it's circulated between the churches. We, we saw something similar to this last week when, when Paul told the Colossian church to, to swap letters with the church in Laodicea. And it's actually possible that this letter to the Ephesians is the letter that he told Colossi to swap with, that, that this letter was actually referred to as the letter to the Laodiceans at one point in church history. And so we can draw this implication in the way that, that Paul writes letters to local congregations that interact, that the church must be expressed in various locations, local churches, even as the church is bigger than any one location. It's about the church, big C, and the churches. We don't put those in opposition to one another. We hold them together. That's why we pray for churches all over the world, right? We remember that it's bigger than us. That's why we pray for other local churches in our location. Because it's bigger than us. And so saints who are faithful are called out for Christ in specific locations so that there is a visible expression of his church there. And so now, maybe you're like, okay, Paul calls these saints faithful, but that's not the experience of the local church that I'm familiar with. I've been to church long enough to know that the people there don't always act like saints. And they aren't always faithful, which is why we need those two ever so important words at the end, in Christ, in Christ. We can only be saints who are faithful in a particular location in Christ. This idea of being in Christ, or, or what theologians would call union with Christ, or our identity in Christ, is a major theme of this book. So, in Ephesians one three, don't try to write this down. By the way, I think the, all the references are at the bottom in the in the apply section. But in Ephesians one three, we are blessed in Christ. In one four, God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. One seven, we have redemption and forgiveness in Christ. One nine, the purpose of His will is set for us. Forward for us in Christ. 113, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit in him. 120, God's power comes to us through his work in Christ. um, 126, we are both raised up with Christ and seated in Christ in the heavenly places. 27, Paul says that God is going to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse chapter 2 verse 10 we are created in Christ Jesus for good works and i could go on in 213 and 36 and 311 and 321 and 432 everything that you are everything that you do as a follower of jesus christ is the result of attaching your life to christ through faith the genuine believer's entire life is wrapped up in those two words in Christ. His righteousness is your righteousness. His heart is your heart. His inheritance is your inheritance. His purpose is your purpose. His armor is your armor. His love is your love. Your identity is in Christ. But if you go back through that list of verses that I just mentioned, you're going to notice something very important that we often miss when we talk about the topic of identity in Christ but they are all descriptions of people together. We are saints who are faithful in Christ together. And so don't try to remove the promises of Ephesians from their context and individualize them. Yes, they are for you as a person, as an individual, but they are for you to enjoy as part of the church. It's the only way that they can really be fully obtained and experienced. So it's like a football game, right? Like I can use my one sports analogy for the year because it's football season starting, right? And and so if if a quarterback comes off the field after a big win or after a big play, and he's like, yes, I am so stoked about my victory over the other team, his teammates are gonna be like, bro, what's your problem? Like you remember, we were all like blocking for you, and you know, like somebody had to catch the ball that you were throwing. And if the quarterback has any integrity, he says, "Yeah, we're stoked about our victory over the other team." And I hope you can see that the same is true of the church. The the blessings of God and the promises of God and the plan of God are experienced and enjoyed together in Christ. And our our common identity in him unites us together. And in fact, it creates a common picture that's found in the book of Ephesians. That is, we are the body of Christ. Each of us are in Christ in the sense that we are part of his body. The church locally, globally, and universally is an integral part of our identity in Christ. And so this fall, we want to keep exploring what that means so that we would increase our wonder at our identity in Christ. Ask yourself this question. How much, on a daily basis, do I make of being in Christ? How much do I make of being in Christ? How much do I... Think about it. How much do I dwell upon it? How much do I cherish it? How much do I allow it to drive my life? And how much do I think about the fact that I am only one member, one part of his body? How much do I consider that I am in Christ together with other believers? Because once we start to really grab hold of who we are in Christ, everything changes about our daily experience, doesn't it? Our fears and anxieties change. Our desires and motivations, they change. Our priorities and our pursuits change. My whole definition of success in life changes. My whole orientation to the world around me changes. Being in Christ changes everything. So we're going to keep returning to that theme again and again so that we would wonder at it and that it would captivate our thoughts and change everything about our daily lives. Now, we can only be saints who are faithful in Christ if the gospel has come to us and has captivated and changed our hearts. And so the church is the called-out assembly of believers, right? And and, and this is captured in verse 2. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's the third and final theme that we want to look at today. Expand your passion for the gospel of Christ. Paul, as he always does, is going to connect everything in this letter back to the gospel of Jesus. The the church exists because God in his grace saves sinners and set them apart from the rest of the world. The, The church can experience peace because Jesus came as the prince of peace. He himself is our peace, as Ephesians 2. And that is the gospel. The the grace of God bringing about the peace of God. Grace to you and peace from our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are the heartbeat of the gospel in chapter 2. And grace and peace are the result of the gospel in chapter 4. I I like how Howard Honer explains this verse. He writes, grace expresses the cause, God's gracious work, and peace, the effect of God's work. The grace of God that brings salvation to sinners effects peace between them and God, and that same grace enables believers to live peaceably with others. Do you see it in the verse? Grace and peace. Grace is the cause of God's work, and peace is the effect. We mentioned it earlier in Ephesians one ten that God's plan is to reconcile all things in Him. That is in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That's peace. That's the definition of peace that he's going for. These words, grace and peace, can become so familiar to us that again, we can think two small thoughts of them. Just give me peace. Just let me have a quiet moment in the corner with a latte. Give me grace. Just overlook my sin. And because they become so small, over and over again, Paul grasps for words and he uses this word riches. Riches to describe the gospel and its benefits. It's like my favorite word in the book of Ephesians, riches. Six times Paul describes the grace of God and the resulting benefits of peace with God as riches. When Paul says, grace to you and peace, it's not a little trite greeting that he's saying. It's not like like us writing, I hope this letter finds you well because we don't know what else to write to start out our letter. It seems polite. This is something that Paul wants the church of Jesus Christ to know and experience. He's going to pray twice for their experience of this. The riches of God's grace that results in the riches of God's peace with himself and with others. When we learn to value the gospel, when we expand our passion for the gospel in this way, that's when we get to be the church that God called us to be. When we put the gospel on display for all to see in heaven and on earth, when we live out Our identity in Christ because grace has come to us. We then carry his gospel to a lost and dying world so that more of the nations can be added to the church of the saints and more people can give God the glory that he deserves. And the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places can look on in awe, not of us, but of the work that God has done in us. And so this fall, will you pursue? God's unimaginable vision for his church so that he might receive much glory. As we close, I want you to write down the answer to this question. What is the greatest thing that you could imagine God doing in this local expression of his church? Now, maybe you're visiting with us this morning. Uh, Maybe maybe you don't have a lot of ideas because you don't know us well. Write something down. Uh, maybe you have your own church family. Maybe you're looking for a church, and you're. What what is the greatest thing that you could possibly be looking for God to do in a church that you're looking for? Go ahead and write that down. I, I really specifically want you to write that down because I'm going to ask us to uh, break down into smaller groups and pray together. And and I know that that can be uncomfortable at times, and you might not know the people around you. And so if you're like a leader in our church, just you know look out, make sure people have somebody to pray with. And if you're visiting, you don't feel like you have to pray. If you if you uh, don't love praying in public, just try to grow yourself a, a little bit at a time, right? Let God grow you a little bit at a time. But uh, once you have something written down, and then we're going to pray over those things. Because he wants us to ask, right? You can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think and I hate to break it to you, but whatever you write down is going to be too small. So just submit it to the Lord and say, this is what I'm asking. Increase my vision. Increase my vision. Maybe, maybe it's that you would have unity with other believers. Maybe it's that your family would be a healthy family and a good contribution to the church of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's that, the Lord would save tons of people and our baptismal tanks would be full. Whatever you write down, it's going to be too small. So write it down. It's fine. (laughs) Whatever I would write down is too small. And then let's pray. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.